Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, no doubt you have heard how important emotional intelligence is for leading and for motivating people. And in my experience, whatever level of emotional intelligence you have, there is always room to get a bit better. However, one of my personal frustrations is that there's not enough practical advice about what to do to improve. And today, I want to change that state of affairs. So first off, I want to understand what it is that derails people, you in particular, and what you can do about it. And then second, I want you to begin to understand motivation. So my guest today is Carrie Goyette. She's the founder and president of Aperio Consulting Group, which is a corporate consulting firm, and she... They work closely with workplace analytics and research-based strategies to ultimately build high-performance teams. And Carrie's work has been featured in Fast Company, CEO World Magazine, Business.com, Courts at Work, Innovation Enterprise. Most importantly for today, her new book, The Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence, has been selected by Forbes as one of the best business books for the summer in 2019. She has an incredibly popular TEDx talk called Stop Trying to Motivate Your Employees. Um, So, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Wanda. It's a pleasure. I am so looking forward to this one because I think this whole notion of being able to understand what you need to do to make, to improve your emotional intelligence tactically is really important. I think you've got a lot to say about that. But before I do this, and we want to talk a little bit about derailers, but you have this framework around emotional intelligence, something you call holistic EI, holistic emotional intelligence. What do you mean, and why is that so unique? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, This is a topic I've just been passionate about for years, so I've studied emotional intelligence for over two decades. And emotional intelligence is really about the intelligent use of emotions to make better decisions and more effectively adapt to our environment. And so when you look at the framework behind um, emotional intelligence, you really have to look at the three core elements, which is the self. So, of course, we have to have a level of self-awareness. We need to understand the relationship with ourself. Um, We also have to look at our social relationships, so looking at um, those that we interact um, around us. And then lastly, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is um, this is, uh, you know, an element that I think often is missing in the conversation, and that's around the environment. Um, We are not people in a vacuum. We are part of our environment, and our environment impacts us. And so if we don't really consider the environment we're in and what strategies are needed, um, I think we're really missing a, a key a key point to the conversation. And this ultimately impacts our derailers. Often our environment will trigger our derailers to surface. Okay. Well, most people who write about emotional intelligence talk about the self-awareness side, and they'll talk about right. the awareness of the other, which is a bit of the social relationship. I have to tell you, I know anybody who talks about mm-hmm. the environment as a factor So can you give me an example of what you mean by an environment and how it impacts emotional intelligence? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I actually became um, really interested in the en- environment after reading uh, some research on, on you know, kind of what's changing in this knowledge era. And so, you know, a lot of researchers work, will call it a VUCA environment. So, you know, with the um, introduction of all this technology and, um, and uh, you know, this exposure to knowledge, we now have access to knowledge that we didn't have before. Um, it's really changed our environment. And so, you know, back in the late 1990s, the, the term VUCA environment was coined, and it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And so I just became very interested in that and wanted to look at um, how is that impacting us as individuals. And I found it interesting that, you know, um, over the last three decades, our IQ has been going up, but at the same rate, our emotional intelligence has, has fallen. And so when you look at um, the, the just rapid shifts in our environment, um, it tends to kind of create the environment that creates a lot of fear in the brain. And we've learned so much more about neuroscience and, um, and you know, kind of what the brain is, is driven for, and it's really hardwired for, for that social connection. Um, and it's wired to keep you alive. I mean, its ultimate goal is, is your survival. So part of that survival is, is kind of managing fear, being able to predict what's going to happen next, and then also the quality, the depth of your social relationships. And so I just became very fascinated about the environment and how it impacts it. And sure enough, as I was working with leaders, um, this new environment that's becoming much harder to predict and um, it's very volatile, they can't predict the markets, I'm seeing a lot more of their derailers surface. Okay, that sounds like the perfect. So we have an environment that is more volatile. I'm going to use the word stressful Mm -hmm. because I think that's what you mean by the fear Mm -hmm. in the brain. We just create those stress responses. And that means I'm either going to mm-hmm. fight, flight, freeze, and we're kind of, that has mm-hmm. an impact on our ability to react, emotion, use emotional intelligence, use emotions in intelligent ways. So let's go mm-hmm. and shift in and talk about the derailers. <laughs> and you say there are six of these. Okay. So tell us what they are and what does each one of them look like? Yeah, sure. So there's six of the most common derailers that we see. And so we have conflict avoidance. So conflict avoidance is this is when um, we avoid decisions to either dodge criticism um, or it's just because we're afraid to get out of our comfort zone. So it could be for either reason. Um, and so often what will happen is when we avoid conflict, we pay the price at some point. As we all know, we often think, oh, these problems will get better or they'll work themselves out. When it comes to people issues, um, they rarely do. And so what happens is usually it comes out as passive aggressiveness later or very unhealthy, volatile emotions um, once the, the conflict has, has been allowed to fester. The second one is impulsiveness. So this is um, this is our ability to control immediate gratification. And so this is one that, you know, of course, in this environment where we're all um, kind of stimulated by immediate gratification, if we don't know the answer to something, we can immediately pick up our smartphone and Google it. Um, this is one that, that's hard. And so a lot of, um, a lot of schools um, are starting to teach more around um, controlling impulses. But it's, um, it's the limbic brain's impulses and wants to take a short-term hit. It's always the brain is always looking to conserve energy and it's looking for shortcuts. And so in, in the organizational space where I see this come out most often with leaders is they're not spending time in strategic thinking. Strategic thinking takes the prefrontal cortex. It's the 
thinking part of the brain. And so, unfortunately, they're just caught up by the day-to-day, the inbox. They'll grab their smartphone and they'll start solving problems that are embedded in their inbox. The problem with that is, you know, that's where your brain is naturally wanting to take you um, take you to because they're problems you solved before and while you get frustrated with them um, and you're like, oh, here, you know, I've got to solve these problems. Um, the reality is you're kind of wanting to do that because it's much easier than trying to figure out what's our long-term strategy. Um, when you have to think into the future and evaluate different options, it just takes a lot of energy and a lot of brain power. And so that need to control our impulsiveness is, is becoming much, much more critical as a leader in this new environment. Um, the third one that I often see um, among employees is blame shifting. And I see this especially across different departments. Um, this, you know, this department that I'm interacting with, you know, they didn't, they didn't get us the product in time or they didn't get us the data in time. And so it's a bias toward exaggerating the negative and feeling like a victim. And so, you know, whenever I have um, departments that are blaming other departments, you know, they'll be like, well, they made a mistake or they, they didn't do this. Well, have you ever not done that? You know, so we tend to really exaggerate the mistakes of others. Um, and then we, we tend to hold ourselves as much more innocent or even a victim in the process. And so blame shifting, again, is a very common um, derailer. It, it actually does not lead to problem solving, and it's a big inhibitor to, to problem solving. Um, the, the fourth is control. So these are the leaders that um, just are control mongers. They want to control everything, and they tend to exert their authority their power over people. And this is, you know, this is not working well, especially out for this younger generation. Um, people don't like to be controlled. We have a sense of autonomy. It violates their sense of autonomy. Uh, now, the reason why a lot of leaders are kind of now, you know, when we see the control derailer come out, it's usually um, a fear response. They're afraid they're not going to hit the result, results. They're afraid they're not going to get the outcome that they want. And then they feel that the only way they can get that outcome is by jumping in there and micromanaging. Now, unfortunately, that tends to alienate the hearts of the people around them, and so they disengage. And so it actually um, will cause them to, to, you know, for the outcome that they fear the most to, to become realized. Um, the fifth one is perfectionism. And so these are people that tend to be, um, they can often be very, like, technical, so a lot of engineers um, or very artistic, so graphics designers, but they tend to have a lot of perfectionism and idealism um, that they lean toward. And, again, it, most of our derailers, they served us well at one point in our life, um, but, but if left unchecked, that's where they can become a problem. And so emotional intelligence is really recognizing the environment and is this helpful in this in this particular environment. I've seen perfectionism taken to an extreme to where to where leaders or even individuals will just completely blow through deadline after deadline because it's just not perfect. Um, and that's what will um, ultimately hold them back. And then the last one is power hunger and these are people that use their um, that use their position and exert it over others. And so they're just there to climb the ladder. Um, they really don't care about other people around them. They're there just to um, get to the next rung on the ladder. And, again, that's going to alienate yeah. people very quickly because they're looking at do you have credibility, do you have power and authority. You may have power, power and authority, but ultimately are you friend or foe? That's the second question they're asking. And if they sense very quickly that it, you're out for yourself, I will tell you, you, will, um, you may get compliance in your, um, in your team, but you will never get the full commitment. Right, right. 
<laughs> label these, Terry, in ways that if we just read the labels, like con- conflict avoidance, impulsiveness, claim shifting, mm-hmm. control, perfectionism, power mm-hmm. hungry, that all of us would say, oh, yeah, yeah, those are not good things. And most of us would probably say, oh, I don't do those things. But when you under <laughs> the labels, I think we all do absolutely every one of them, some of them more than others, when we're feeling, yes. um, use the word trigger, but when we're feeling under stress. And that's where we come back to why the environment is such an important thing. And I'm going to give you an example. That's just from my day. We'll start at the very top, conflict avoidance. So last week, <clears throat> I'm talking with someone who is struggling to get a fight in his team between two individuals under control. And those two individuals are just kind of at each other's throats constantly. A little bit of blame shifting going on there, I might argue, for both of the two individuals. But the leader Mm -hmm. is so conflict-avoidant, won't actually kind of just, just just let it sit and not recognizing how much it's festering. And, you know, you'll dress it up with nice words as in, oh, yeah, they're two adults, they will sort it out, well, they're just two very different personalities, you know, I've got other things on fish to fry, come on, they have to take care of their own, so I mean, a whole bunch of things. But that can sit there and be brutal on everybody, yet that leader will tell a story that, that makes that sound perfectly logical in his own head. Right, and that's where I try to be very objective and and use some different analytics to bring into light what are the consequences of your conflict avoidance. I'm very practical by nature, so I'm always like, hey, if it's working out for you, great, but let's see. And most, most leaders, they kind of have their... You know, most of us do this, but we we kind of stick our head in the sands and think, oh, it's it's fine. They're adults; they can they can work it out, and it's probably not impacting it. But just this week, I, I um, we assessed the we did a climate survey and assessed um, a particular group, and one of the leaders, same thing, very conflict avoidant, and I mean the engagement scores of the entire group were just in the toilet. Everybody was demotivated because this conflict between employees that weren't that was not being addressed was just impacting the entire morale of the group. And so I think it was very enlightening when I had to sit down and debrief this leader. Um, they just had no idea that it had that kind of impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is that the best way to recognize whether I'm co- being conflict avoided? So we're all conflict avoided at some moment in time. What we're talking about is mm-hmm. conflict avoidance that's actually causing negative consequences for the organization. Mm-hmm. So Is that the best way to assess it? I look at the climate. Are there other ways of recognizing that conflict avoidance in myself? Yeah, I mean, I will often speak to, you know, you can do a survey, um, you can do, um, you can actually speak with team members um, and to try to figure out. I really like getting feedback outside of the, the one individual just because we all have our own self-assessment, but where we start to get more of that accurate self-awareness is when we can take in other data points, and those other data points come from the people that we work with the most. And so even if, um, whether you have a consultant in there or not, um, I always encourage leaders, go out and, and get a pulse. Ask people for feedback. Ask, you know, if there was one thing we could do to improve the, 
um, the culture of this team, what would it be? And what are, you know, what are some of the top challenges? And I said, you know, I always tell them that you'll hear a lot and there'll be some really good gold nuggets in there. And so I think part of it is we have to get really good about asking for feedback and taking in other data points. Because if you have a human brain, you are biased. We are all biased. And so the best way to, to um, manage that is to know that we're biased and to say, I need other data points so that I can, I can get a more accurate view of what the situation is. And so, again, just leaning into it, asking for feedback. Um, and then I have leaders walk through, tell me about times you've avoided conflict in the past. Okay, what were the consequences? What happened? Um, and usually, you know, when they reflect on it, they can tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, it didn't work very well in that situation. Well, why not? What happened? What do you wish you would have done in that situation? And so they, that, you know, even kind of going back to the past and looking at areas where they avoided conflict and what the consequences were helps them. And then we go to the future. Okay, there's a conflict going on now. Now, based on what you've seen in the past, what do you think is going to happen if this is avoided? And so they start to connect the dots more. Most of the time, they just don't, they don't even notice it. They're not even, they can't necessarily label that they're conflict avoidant. And so it's just difficult for them to connect the dots and to see how they're playing into the, into the issues. Yeah, yeah. It feels like when you're in the middle of that, that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm kind of keeping everything right. calm and moving forward and not having too much tension and we don't want to have a fight. And, you know, there's tons of ways in which we mm-hmm. tell ourselves a story, a script that justifies the choices that I've made or the choices I haven't made. So, Kay, if you find somebody who is conflict avoidant, do you have some tactics that you think are helpful? I do. I have one particular leader. Um, he's incredibly conflict avoidant. And so, you know, he's never going to be the guy that jumps in there and says, all right, let's deal with conflict. Um, and so what I had to do, we, we worked together to create a system to say, okay, how are you going to, um, it was a very objective process to say, how are you going to identify conflicts or problems that are going on within your team? And so we came up with um, a way to identify. So he and his managers were going to be um, getting feedback and they were going to be writing down all of the issues that were surfacing. And then he had to track and, and report back whether or not they were resolved and how they were resolved. And then we would reflect on, okay, was that truly resolved? You know, over time we would look at, was it resolved? And so it really helped him in the sense of it gave him a framework um, he had help. We brought in his, you know, the managers that were underneath him, so he wasn't doing it alone. And it wasn't done, you know, a lot of people think, well, in order to address conflict, I just need to be aggressive and I need to go in there. If you're not an aggressive person, that's never going to work for you. You have to work with your authentic style. And so he's always going to be a softer approach, but that doesn't mean that he can't address it. And so what I helped him see was this was not coming in aggressive. This was um, you're coaching and developing people to resolve conflict. So your job is to sit them down. We have to identify the conflict, and then come up with solutions. And what leaders have found is once they disengage in that first part, it's about identifying kind of the problem or the issue, the root issue at hand. The solutions, they're the easiest. And that's what he said to me. He goes, oh, my gosh, this isn't really that hard. And I was like, yeah. Because <laughs> um, once you get to the solution side, it's just usually, you know, it's just usually very easy to pinpoint a solution. The hard part is just addressing the conflict and identifying where's the gap. What's, what's, what's truly yeah. is underlying this issue? Well, I like that notion that there's a way to do conflict, even if I'm not an aggressive type, that I can do conflict within my mm-hmm. own style and preferences. The thing is, I just can't mm-hmm. avoid 
doing something about it. I think that's the big story. All right, I want to move forward. Let me talk about impulsiveness for a minute. Um, and again, it sounds like, mm-hmm. oh, no, 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 impulsiveness. It's a terrible thing. We don't want to be impulsive. But let me tell you what I thought just this week. A whole collection <laughs> where, you know, we've stripped out layers in the organization. You're now doing two to three jobs that used to be done by two to three different people. There's, you've just taken on more onto your plate because you've just gotten a great new opportunity that's going to help raise your profile. And you are so busy, you can't think past what time do I have to be in the next event. So any notion right. of strategic or what's important or where do I really need to be or what's my real contribution here or what's my purpose in this meeting or any of that, is just not happening, absolutely not happening. And that's what you've said by the impulsiveness, that we're just, you know, getting so sucked into the day-to-day that we can't stop ourselves Mm -hmm. from the day-to-day. Did I get that right? Absolutely. And, yeah, and and you said it perfectly. We're not creating the space to think. I mean, we, we don't have time. I mean, that's what we're kind of telling ourselves. We don't have time to think. We just have to... We just have to do, do, do. So we're doing a lot of doing. There's a lot of activity. But when you look at, I just ran into some research um, a couple weeks ago, and you look at how effective are we being in this new world. I mean, it was pretty sad. I mean, we're not very effective at all. And so we're doing, not because we're, there's not a lot of activity. There's more activity than there ever has been. Um, the problem is it's not coherent. It's not well thought out. Um, and so when our brain, if we let our brain get in that pattern, we will just constantly do and we'll operate from emotion. And we'll just we'll just be executing without thinking. That's kind of that limbic brain or the emotional centers of your brain taking over. Is it just going to guide you? And what is it going to guide you to? Whatever it thinks it's worked in the past and very shortcut solutions. And again, that can work well in certain. I'm not saying that's all bad. Um, that can work well in certain situations. But when it's something new, when it's complex, um, when we're dealing with you know a very um, complex, ambiguous environment, that's where we need to step back and we need to think. And that's where even, you know, organizations are struggling right now because of the market. They're having to come up with new solutions. They're having to think strategically. And thinking strategically is different. I always get in this argument, but thinking strategically is different than strategic planning. Strategic planning is a process, but are we taking time to really think about what's going on in our environment? What do we need to do? And it's it's hard work, and and people are struggling trying to find time to do it. And, and that's why yeah. I would say we're not, that's why we're not operating at our full potential. We're not using kind of the full thinking part of our brains. We're just going to reacting. Okay. All right. So I need this when I think about every single person I interact with. How do you get people out? So there's the argument that we're caught by the limbic brain and taking a shortcut and doing whatever is easy and that I've done before and we're not thinking and we're using that as a self-perpetuating story. I don't have time, and therefore I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I get people to Mm -hmm. recognize that. What are the tactics for getting out of that mode and doing something different? Do you have have any secrets? Mm Yeah, so um, one of the things about the brain, um, in order to use the prefrontal cortex or the thinking part of the brain, you kind of, I always, that's why I kind of like to get into the neuroscience, because if you understand it a little more, then you can more effectively be like, oh, okay, now I know how to better access it. 
Um, and so one thing is we know that the brain doesn't want to access it because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy, resources, glucose in order to operate the prefrontal cortex. The emotional centers of the brain are automatic. It's easy. It just runs, you know, runs super efficiently. And so the brain naturally doesn't, doesn't want to access it. And I always kind of give a math example, you know, what's one plus one? What's two plus two? Okay. What's 286 plus 79? Why was that last question so much harder? Cause I was making you think. <laughs> and so it's kind of a perfect example. Your brain doesn't want to go there. And so you have to get disciplined. You know, there's no other way to say it other than, you know, you can't build muscle without working it. Same thing with leveraging the thinking part of your brain. You have to be disciplined about protecting time and calling it to practice. It's not just going to come... Um, to attention right when you want it to. It takes a little bit of time to get into it. And if we've all sat down, like when I was writing the book, I mean, there were so many times I'd sit down and I'd want to pick up my phone and maybe check email. You know, I just immediately wanted to be distracted. But if I waited and I was disciplined and I put my phone in the other room, eventually I'd get into the flow. And the next thing you know, I'm using my prefrontal cortex. I'm in that flow. I'm excited. Um, I'm thinking. And so part of it is you have to give it a little bit of time, limit distractions. The other piece is that we know that the brain, the prefrontal cortex, um, we have most of the energy um, in, in the, the, the beginning part of the day, so when we're well-rested. And at max, we have about only two hours a day with the prefrontal cortex. Um, now, you can increase that a little bit if you take a glucose drink, but of course, you know, there's uh, downsides to that. You could gain weight. But, but ultimately, you know, if you kind of respect the fact that I have a good two hours of really good, solid thinking time uh, before I need to, you know, maybe take a break or take a nap or glucose or something, um, then, you know, think, always structure your day. Be, design your, your environment and design your work to work with your brain. And so I do all of my hard, deep thinking work in the morning. And I limit distractions, I block it out, and then the rest of the day are meetings and just dealing with, with problems. Um, and so that works out really well. And I, find, and I will watch weeks when I do that and then weeks when I'm not as disciplined and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. And then when you start to track it, you can really tell a difference. I had a leader yesterday just tell me, like, just that one tip he said has made a huge difference. He said, I'm so much more effective. So I would say understanding the brain, making sure that you're using that deep thinking time when you're most well-rested. Um, and then limiting distractions so that you can access that part of the brain and you're not being pulled away. Every time you get pulled away from a task, it takes, you know, they say around, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes to get back into the flow. Yeah. Yeah. I think people underestimate how much time it takes to get back in the flow. I certainly recognize this in my life, and I recognize it in all of my clients' lives, that you, how easy it is to get distracted and, for, you know, to sit down and say, well, let me just clear out my emails for the morning. And then four hours later, you're looking up without having actually accomplished anything that was relevant, and you've used your capacity for the day on those darn emails as opposed to having spoken the time, the two hours when I was really in a good place and forced the brain to work on it. But again, you have to eliminate the distractions. I think that's exactly right. Well, Carrie, this is right. And I think the new leader of the future is going to be that leader that's disciplined and can focus and can do that, honestly. I mean, focus is becoming, you know, one of the most valuable resources right now. Yeah. I think it's one of the core things that we have to learn to get on top of. And it's not like the organization is going to do it for me. I'm going to have to force no. if it's going to happen at all. Right. We have to learn to struggle. Yeah. That's exactly I right. I like we the notion. to do it on our own. 
I like this notion, though, that it's just the brain being lazy. As we know now from neuroscience, that the brain wants to take every shortcut it can and not have to use excess capacity in the prefrontal cortex to think and analyze and so on. So it may feel like you're thinking, but you're not. What you're really doing is just reacting to what's easy. And what's easy is the distraction, things I know how to solve already. All right, so, Carrie, we certainly haven't covered every one of these derailers, but I think it gives people a sense of how all this works. So just to kind of recap this segment, we've been talking about holistic emotional intelligence, which has three components, awareness of yourself, an understanding of yourself in a social relationship context, and then the third is understanding about the environment. And that the environment that we're in creates reactions in the brain, typically fear in the brain around uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, failure, whatever the formula is at the moment. And what that does is trigger us into one of these six derailers so that it's easier to do one of these than it is to actually deal with the circumstances, the situations what's directly in front of me. Um, and it can feel like you're being logical and it can feel like you're under control, but what we know from brain science is you're not as logical or using emotion as intelligently as you need to use. The 60 railers are conflict avoidance, impulsiveness, blame shifting, control, perfectionism, and power hungry. For each of those, it's a, getting some outside data, understanding what the consequences are of each of your choices, and then being very thoughtful, disciplined, focused, if you will, in choosing to do this in a different way. Is that a good, decent summary, Carrie? Yeah, that's perfect, Wanda. That's perfect. Okay. All right, my guest today is Carrie Goyette. The book that I want to really emphasize is The Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence. Fabulous insight and lots of explanations of exactly what we've been talking about. When we come back, I want to talk about motivation. And particularly, I want to talk about Carrie's talk that says, stop trying to motivate your employees. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Carrie Goyette, and Carrie is founder and president of Aperio Consulting Group. She also is the author of a highly talented and book I like a lot called The Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence. It was a top-ranked book by Forbes for summer of 2019. It's also just been named by Forbes as in the top 20 for 2020, or the top for 2020. There's a brand new article in HBR on the derailers stuff. So this book is going to get a lot of attention. One of the reasons I like it so much is because it's not just a description of emotional intelligence. It's got an awful lot of how-tos. So with this thing, we're just talking about derailers and the ways in which we get hooked by our brain into shortcuts. And then we do things that are not constructive for the organization. And a lot of that's driven by the environment that's around us, not necessarily just by how we're wired completely. All right, but I want to talk now about the thing that everybody I stand in front of wants to know more about, and that's motivation. So, Carrie, you've said a lot to say about this, and you believe that we have a lot of incorrect beliefs about what motivates people, namely that carrots and sticks, like bonuses and goals and targets and espresso machines, is a really misguided idea. Why is that true? Yeah, yeah. Motivation is really an interesting concept, and I've been studying it for for years, um, and I get asked by leaders, like, I just want people to be motivated to do what I want them to do. Um, and I think that's kind of that, that little qualifier at the end, what I want them to do, that's the issue. And what I found is, um, you know, everybody is motivated. They just may not be motivated for what you want them to be motivated for, or what you think they should be motivated for. And so to say that I want to motivate somebody I think is a little bit of a misconception. And, and you know, in, in my eyes, words matter because if that's how I come at it as a leader, um, what am I likely to use? Well, I'm likely to use those carrots and sticks. Okay, I just need to offer a carrot. I need to offer this bonus or I need to put, you know, espresso machines or beer, you know, on Fridays. And I, I'm not arguing that those things can't be good things, but but they are short-term fixes. They can, they can work in the short term, but they will not um, – they will not – correlate with sustained engagement over time. And so in order to really tap into um, motivation, you know, it's what I always call you need to unleash what they're motivated by. And so that's where leaders need to get to know their, their team members and figure out what are they motivated by. And for instance, you know, healthcare, why do most people, why do most people go into nursing, for instance? Um, it's not because it's usually not because they want to make a lot of money. It's because they feel a strong passion for helping and for feeling like they're, you know, they're bettering um, somebody's life. And so they're very mission-driven. And so if you have a CFO that's talking to nurses um, and he's only talking about the numbers, well, you've, not only have you just lost them, but you've actually demotivated them. Um, and so understanding how um, different people are motivated, I think, is key to unleashing that. And I think carrots and sticks, you just have to – I just think it's, it's getting dangerous and especially with this 
um, war for talent that we're in. You know, it's a candidate's market right now, and we're trying to attract and retain this younger generation. And so, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing organization. I mean, I had one organization that was doing Margarita Wednesdays. (laughs) Um, So they're kind of going over the top with that. But what's interesting is what's the number one reason this younger generation is leaving their job? Lack of meaningful feedback has nothing to do with, well, they didn't have an espresso machine that I liked. And, and at some level, if you overuse that, I think it actually becomes condescending to them. Yeah. I think they feel like they're being treated like children. Yeah. yeah. I certainly have talked to a number of um, millennials who will say, yeah, I'm really appreciative for the espresso machine, and it looks good when I post it on my Instagram. And all my friends are jealous of this fancy new espresso machine that we got, but that isn't what's going to keep me on the building. Is not what's going to keep me in this job and moving forward. And it's the meaningful feedback and it's understanding who I am as a person. It understands, therefore, what it is that motivates me. I know, I can't tell you though, Carrie, I don't think I know a single person responsible for year-end evaluations of anybody who doesn't believe that more carrot and the notion of more money or more promotion is Mm -hmm. the only thing that matters in motivation. So can you just give us a why Mm -hmm. that isn't good enough? Yeah, because, again, I think you're missing the mark. Um, When you tap into the intrinsic motivators, you know, there's a lot of research around intrinsic versus extrinsic. So intrinsic are those motivations that come from within. It's kind of like if I'm going to read a book, what's my motivation to read a book? Well, because I'm curious. I like to learn or I like to be swept away. You know, those are all intrinsic. If somebody said, hey, I'm going to give you a pizza for reading a book, that's an extrinsic motivator. They're giving me something in exchange for doing something. And there's a lot of research out there um, in behavioral economics about when you take something that's an intrinsic motivator, like reading a book, and now all of a sudden you've replaced it with an extrinsic motivator now becomes a transaction. And what's interesting, when Pizza Hut actually (laughs) did that, and we all thought it was a great program, it sounds good in theory, the problem is what happened to kids' motivation to read? It actually decreased it. And so you have to be careful when using extrinsic rewards. They can actually... They can actually replace a, an, an intrinsic one, and now it becomes an, a, a transaction. And now it's like, oh, wait a minute! Now that now, now that um, book is an impediment to me getting a pizza. And so now they're going to look yeah. for shortcuts. So what am I going to go to? I'm going to go to the book that has the biggest fonts, the least amount of pages. And that's what that's where reading comprehension went down. Teachers saw that kids were just picking short books. They were going way below their reading comprehension level. And so you just have to be careful with rewards. I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not saying rewards in general are bad. I'm just saying you can't use it as the only motivator. And you really have to understand people inherently um, are intrinsically motivated. And the beautiful thing about that is it's free. You don't have to have a big budget to tap into it. It's absolutely free. It just takes a little bit of work on the leader to recognize what is it that they're motivated by, what do they love about their work, where do they feel challenged and and engaged, and then how can I um, continue to unleash that? And so I think that's where leaders need to develop more of that leadership capacity to be able to see that and to to unleash their employees' motivation, not to say, I want to motivate them in my way to do what I want them to do. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I see somebody who loves their job, really enjoys the manager mm-hmm. they're working for, will say, I'm learning a lot. I will say, this manager is helping me develop. All those components mm-hmm. are good, but they're ready to quit mm-hmm. because they're not getting a bonus or a promotion that they want. 
And I say that's on the organization mm-hmm. because you made the bonus of the promotion the only indicator of the person's value. Yeah. So this week you're done. What yeah, and you take something that was intrinsic and turned it to a transaction, an extrinsic. Okay. Right. Right, and that's where we have to be careful. That's why we need to make sure that we're having ongoing conversations with our employees and providing good feedback. And I think that's why there's a lot coming out around the performance review and a lot of companies are doing away with it because it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's replacing some of the intrinsic motivation. Again, I don't think it's necessarily inherently bad overall. I just think the way it's practiced is, um, yeah, it's it's often used as a replacement. Right, right. Uh, well, we could go down a long track on that one because I spend way too many conversations <laughs> on this one. So let's go down the more positive, more constructive track, which is intrinsic motivations. So what mm-hmm. are the – you talk about six types of intrinsic motivations. What are those for you? Yeah, so Dr. Springer, a psychologist, um, had identified that there are six basic um, intrinsic motivations. And so the first one is traditional. So these are people that um, just have a strong motivation to structure process. They are called our organizers, so they're great at managing and organizing information. And so one mistake that leaders make with um, people that are high traditional is they often, you know, if they don't like a lot of structure, they don't like um, a lot of order, they'll just kind of throw them off, give them a blank sheet of paper, and then they'll watch them fail. Um, and so this, this group actually needs um, some organization, some structure to get started. Now then they can tweak and they will make it that much better. But they are our structure organizers. They're all about um, ethics and doing things right and doing things, you know, following procedures. Then we have the utilitarian. These are our doers. These are the people that like to take action. They're the ones who are motivated to check tasks off their list. So they're the people that, you know, love to get it done, not only like do the task, but to be able to say it is complete, done, and move on. So they're very practical, they're very goal-oriented, and they're very resourceful in how they achieve their tasks. The high theoretical, these are thinkers. So think your typical college professor. They're motivated by solving and analyzing problems, so they love to research. They're naturally intellectually curious. They love to be put on teams where they've got to solve a problem or research a problem or analyze or systematize um, some way to think objectively about it. So, again, high theoreticals are great thinkers. Um, aesthetic, they're our creators. They're all about, um, they're more subjective. They're in tune to the environment, and it's about creating and exploring that environment. So they notice form, beauty, harmony. A lot of software developers, especially front-end software developers, have high aesthetic. Um, so it's all about kind of improvement, balance, harmony, and very much an attunement into the environment and creativity. The fifth one is social. So these are our helpers. These are the ones that have the servant's heart, very altruistic. So it's about doing something for a mission, bettering the, the organization, bettering people's lives, um, investing in worthy causes. They make great team members and, and love to focus on collaboration. And then the last one are, is the individualistic motivation, which is the, our influencers. They're all about persuading, managing, and leading. They love creating strategic alliances. They're all about maximizing personal accountability. You will often see them in leadership positions, but not because they wanted to, but because they were frustrated that nobody else stepped up and and volunteered to lead. So they get really frustrated with others that won't step up. They can be highly competitive. They love to control their own destiny, um, and they love to, you know, again, see some sort of career path for where they can go. 
And those are the all right. six, so, was, yeah, the six intrinsic motivators. Okay, all right. So let me just see if I can repeat those and do some reasonable justice <laughs> in quick order for what you said. There are people who are traditionalist and they like the structure of the process and the organization. That's what's going to motivate them. There are people who are doers who just like to get things done, goal-oriented, check things off. That's what's going to motivate them. They're the high theoretical that love to solve complex problems and like to be quite curious. Those are the kind of things that are going to be motivating. There are people who are aesthetics. They're going to care about improvement and harmony, the look and feel, the beauty, the form. There are people who are social. What will motivate them is the being helpers, being altruistic, doing something that is for other, good for other people. And the last one are the individualists who like are motivated by influence, by personal accountability, by having people step up and controlling their own destiny. I do a decent job. That's great. Yes, you did a fantastic job. Okay, all right. So now, here I go. I've got these six categories, and I can begin to understand what motivates people in each of those categories. Um, How do I know where people on my team are? How do I begin to figure out who's in which of these categories? Well, there are a couple different ways. So one, one, the easiest way is there are assessments out there that can assess that. So we carry different assessments. We have about 65 to 70 different psychometric tools that we use. So it can be measured. But also, you can just um, start to get to know your employees and ask good questions. You know, ask them questions about what, what is the most exciting part you like about your job and why is that? So get to a lot of the why questions, why. And if you ask a nurse, you know, what is it that you love about your job? Oh, I love, you know, going in and taking care of the patient. Why? And you start to get, you'll hear that, that high social um, motivator come out, that altruism. And that's just what, what gets them excited. So it's really not that hard to un- uncover if you just ask ask a few questions. The high utilitarian, you know, asking them about what do you love about that? Oh, I just love checking it. You know, I will ask people that all the time and you can tell they're high utilitarian because they'll be like, I just love checking it off. My, I love when I get it done. And then, and then ask what creates frustration? Well, when other people aren't hitting deadline. I mean, you also hear that their motivation is also kind of embedded in what frustrates them about others. And so what we have to understand though is um, often as a leader, I'm going to approach it from my motivator, my lens. It's the lens that I'm looking through without recognizing that each of them bring value and actually diverse teams. Um, each, each different motivator brings a very diverse perspective. And we all know that diversity wins with ethnicity and gender, but the same thing is true with just perspective and the lens that we look through. So our motivational style will, will absolutely matter. And so some people are more motivated for that pleasure seeking, you know, going after getting goals and then other people are much more um, preventive focused. They're more, um, they're more motivated to kind of protect what they have. They're what I call the guardians or the protectors of the organization. And we need both of them, but we often are very biased in our own view and that we get frustrated with others when they're not, um, when they're not motivated the same way. It becomes a values conflict. Yeah. yeah. I see that all the time. I see that particularly in evaluating whether a candidate is um, going to be a high potential candidate or whether they're ready for a promotion or a larger set of responsibilities. And if that person is motivated by the same kinds of things that the evaluator or the hirer is motivated by, we'll see them as ready, um, uh, solid, you know, the going to be great in this job, good fit for the role. Mm -hmm. And when they're motivated by something that's different, 
than the evaluator or hirer, then they tend to be downgraded in other ways. And we get some of that bias floating through right there. But it comes down to, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean somebody's not a good leader because they're motivated by something different than you are motivated by. Exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay. We see that play out over and over again. Yeah. So I ask questions now. I ask questions of my individual team members, hopefully over a casual conversation, not a sit-down that means real you in the next 30 minutes to figure this out. And I'm going to ask them what they find exciting about their job and why. And it's listening for the why, and it's listening for the language then and that why that falls into the six buckets of intrinsic motivators. And then I ask them for what creates frustrations in their current job, and I listen for the things that are missing in those six mm-hmm. that help me understand what it is that is actually the really motivator. All right, so now I know I could actually maybe put a person's name and an intrinsic motivator name beside the, beside them. Now what do I do? Now we work at unleashing them. So each of the six motivators, and I have it in my book, but ways to unleash, you know, each of them. And so, you know, for instance, for the traditional, so giving them assignments that require them to, um, you know, to create structure and order and follow a process and to to um, improve processes um, that will just keep them excited. And when you're going to talk to them, you're going to you're going to talk to them through the language of process. Um, we've got this new initiative. What processes do you see that are missing? What processes do you think, see that we need to add? And so when we talk to them like that, and we're talking about a change initiative, they're more likely to come along because now you're speaking their language. Um, if you're just talking about no, we're we're headed here and we're we're going after this change, and that all sounds great, then the inside they could be rolling their eyes, going, "Well, you haven't thought." about the process and how is this going to be rolled out and how is this going to be consistent and predictable over time. And these are all good questions, um, but they're questions that they're thinking about that you may not be. Same thing with the utilitarian, understanding that um, that they like to accomplish tasks. So assigning them tasks that they can get done, um, putting them on projects that have tight deadlines. Um, think They're great at thinking very efficiently. So looking at um, projects and initiatives, where could we increase our efficiency here? Um, and, and they love that. I mean, now you're tapping into it. Now they feel the, – the great thing is once you start to understand them, now they feel really valued, like, wow, my boss really gets me and put me on that project because not only does he know I'm good at it or she knows I'm good at it, but I, I love doing that. And that's why it's a motivation. When you look at motivation, when we tap into what they're motivated by, that tends to be what we're good at. And so it makes perfect sense. You know, if we like it, we're always going to put that at the top of our list. We're probably going to do it more. We're probably going to research it more and get better at it. And so the more that we can frame projects or put them on projects that tap into their motivational style, the more you just unleash their their potential. And then again, you know that if maybe it's not something that's important to them, you know, why not pick a different team member who it is and then find a project um, that better fits the motivational style strengths of the other. And so, again, there's a lot of great ways to unleash motivation. Yeah. I'm thinking about one person that I worked with who was in an organization where the organization was completely run by process and structure. That was what everybody Mm -hmm. in the organization did, and it was kind of the only thing that was valued in that group within the organization. Perhaps for good reasons, Mm -hmm. perhaps for not, it was as it was. This particular mm-hmm. individual, though, was highly um, individualistic. 
And they really liked that mm-hmm. one-to-one connection and kind of, and a bit of, you know, the, the social, the helpers, but it was that one-to-one connection that kind of helping an individual step up and influencing an individual to make a difference and helping an individual being able to control their own destiny. That was the big driver for that person. Right? They mm-hmm. hated the job, hated the job. And I don't think it was mm-hmm. for anything other than it was just a misalignment of motivations on both sides, a misunderstanding right. on both sides. Right. And if it was a yeah. highly regulatory environment, very process-driven, then, of course, that, that behavior is not going to be rewarded or is most likely not going to be right. rewarded. And so that's right. where they start to feel de- devalued. And even though they come in highly motivated in the beginning and they try to do all those things, what happens, and this is why the environment is so important, the environment will always win. It will suck the motivation. Even if you take, and research has shown this, if you take top performers and you take them out of their environment and put them into a different environment, the question was, would they still be top performers? And the answer was, it depends. depends on the environment. And so that's why I think the environment is so important. And you take somebody like that who could be a very top, a great performer in another um, culture, in another team, but here wasn't able to do it. You know, tried for a while, but then eventually, you know, they're demotivated. They're not rewarded for that. They end up hating it. And then eventually they'll leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen quite a few of those. Boy, we can all get so much better on this intrinsic motivation. I know um, when I do sessions with people about understanding their own motivations, frequently we'll do it with the Hogan MBPI as an assessment tool. It's mm-hmm. a slightly different language, but mm-hmm. very parallel. And when you talk to somebody yes. and you use the language that really motivates them, you see it instantaneously in their face, even if they know mm-hmm. you're just saying it for them. Yes, because you've touched on a value. Yeah, you've touched on a value, and that's why motivators are so incredibly powerful because they're value-driven, they're inherent, and here's the other key, they're inflexible. Because it's a value somebody holds. It's just, you know, you can't change that about them. And so so when you kind of speak to them and you even identify it, it's just like, oh, like their face lights up. And you do, you see it from the inside out. And that's how you know you've, that you've tapped into an intrinsic motivation there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's fascinating. I also think we're not nearly as self-aware about our own intrinsic motivators. So I think this whole exercise of having somebody ask you, what it is you like about your work and why, and then what frustrates you about your work, mm-hmm. and then reflecting it back to you would be an enormously useful mm-hmm. self-exercise. All right, Carrie, you got Yeah, it's not only good for the leader, it's good for the self as well. That's right. All right, so if you have one last bit of advice and you have a minute and a half to get this done, what would you say? I would say in this VUCA environment, um, number one, we have to get really good at leaning into our fears. So what are our fears that are that are um, causing our derailers to come out? Um, the more we kind of get in touch with them, the less scary they are. The more that they're um, opaque and I, I don't quite understand them, the more they're going to drive my life. And so number one, I would say that let's lean into our fears. And number two is let's really start to understand and tap into intrinsic motivation, whether it's our own, start to really think about, you know, what drives you, but also what, what, 
what about the people around you, people you work with, your family members? Um, what, what are their intrinsic motivators and how can I better understand it to deepen the relationships? We know that the depth of our relationships um, is, is a key component of building emotional intelligence and having those great um, social connections. So that's where motivators can really play a, a really positive role in, in deepening your relationships with those around you. I like that one, the intrinsic motivators. I think that's hugely important. And now I know why your TED Talk is so popular. I would also say that these intrinsic motivators are a good way to help understand what's working for you and not working for you in your environment, not just what I want and what other people want, but what's working in my environment and not. And we bring back the third one of the holistic AI. So, Carrie, thank you for being a guest today. What a fabulous conversation. Um, the book. Yeah, I thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. It's my pleasure. The book is The Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence, and as I said earlier, it's getting a lot of good press in many, many places. If you go to Carrie's website, think, T-H-I-N-K, Aperio, A-P-E-R-I-O, dot com, you'll find all sorts of guides and handouts there. Those resources are also in the book as well. They help you think through this and do some exercises on it and track it for yourself. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.